Good morning, everybody. I hope you're ready, because this is going to be a tough one today. The average person speaks 700 times a day. That's not how many words you speak, that's how many times you speak. So in a five-minute conversation, you might speak five times, your friend might speak five times. Now you might think 700 seems a little high, so cut that in half, you're at 350. Cut that in half, you're at 175. Even if you were at 175 times a day, how many times is that spoken word fruitful, beneficial, supportive of others? Now you might think, oh, Dave, most of the time, I'm really good. I encourage others, I'm supportive, I'm a good coworker, I'm a good family member, I'm a great friend, nail it. So let's flip the question. 700, 350, however many times you speak a day. How many times do you speak words that are harmful and hurtful? How many times do you lie to impress others? How many times does the client leave the office and you think, oh man, I gotta make fun of him or tell my buddy about that? How many times do you say hurtful or harmful words to your family members? How many times do you brag just to make yourself look good or so someone doesn't think poorly of you? Right now we're in a sermon series called The Ordinary. And this is the halfway mark. We've talked, about, uh, we've talked about the purpose of life. We've talked about relationships. We've talked about friendship. This one might be the most gritty of all. In the book of Proverbs, no theme is covered more than the idea of speech with nearly a hundred Proverbs dedicated to it. Today we're going to look at about a dozen. So let's pray and ask for God's guidance. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Proverbs. Thank you for the wisdom and the insight. Thank you for um, the King Solomon and everything he put together and the other authors besides. And as we look at our speech, may we be a people that say, God, we know that most of the time we speak well, but we also know that sometimes we fall short. So God, may my words fall down so that your words would be lifted up and we would know how to get better in using our speech to bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, we are going to be in the book of Proverbs. If you're brand new to church, welcome here, whether you're in person or watching online. If you're in person, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can certainly open that. If you're online, there's a Bible app that you can download. Now, the book of Proverbs is interesting because it's not like there's this one or two chapters only on speech. So if you open it up to the book of Proverbs, you might want to follow along and underline some Proverbs on speech and see what's happening right before or right after is taking place. I should let you know that the outline I got from Timothy Keller, I'm using his outline word for word, but all the words within those outlines are my own, so let's dive in. We're going to talk about the power of words, and I need your help. I need some congregational engagement. I need to see you respond to me a little bit, so you're going to know this phrase, and I need you to shout it out back at me. I want it to be loud enough that online can hear. You ready? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... See, I didn't want to lie because I'm the pastor. But if you say that, do you actually believe that to be true? Wouldn't we rather have a broken arm than the most hurtful thing somebody has ever said against us? Ruby Redford uh, wrote a poem about just this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can also hurt me. Stones and sticks break only skin, while words are ghosts that haunt me. Slant and curve the word swords fall if pieces and sticks inside me. Bats and bricks may ache through bones, but words can mortify me. Pain from words has left its scar on mind and hearts that tender. Cuts and bruises have not healed. It's words that I remember. 
Perhaps this next proverb is basically the overview of the entire sermon. We could talk about this, and in one sense we are. I think it will resonate with you. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. I can't believe this book is nearly 30 years old. I looked it up just to make sure I was getting this right. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. Um, perhaps you've heard of it, perhaps you haven't. He wrote it to basically say, this is how we love our spouse. We have to recognize that not everybody love, um, receives love the same way. And your friends, your family members, certainly your spouse, are going to receive love in a particular way. And this is what he says. The five love languages are acts of service, the, the giving of gifts, physical touch, quality time, and words of affirmation. So let me put this into perspective. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas. So we've been talking about Christmas at the church since August. We're already uh, looking forward to what God is going to do here. But if you have a family member, whether it's your spouse, whether it's um, your child, whether it's your parent, whether it's a good friend, who love gifts, you can't just throw them a gift card and think that's going to be okay. You have to find out what it is that moves them, what it is that makes them feel loved. You need to put some real thought into that gift, whether it costs a lot of money or not, to know that you're thinking about them. Because if you give them some sort of token gift or thoughtless gift, or worst of all, no gift at all, they're going to go, does that person even love me? And it's the same thing with words. If you're somebody who is impacted by words and words of affirmation resonate with you, if somebody says something hurtful to you, it pains you to the core. But I think even if words of affirmation aren't one of your top five love languages, we can look back at our life and go, that person said something meaningful to me, and that person nearly destroyed me by what they said. When you look back at your life, what is the most impactful things somebody has said to you? Has a parent spoken love and life into your life? Have they said something that there's that pet name where you just think, oh, I love the way dad talks to me? Or have they said something that resonates and breaks your soul because of what they said? When you look back at your teenage life and you think about a, teen, um, a teacher or a coach, you think, that coach, that teacher, they were amazing. And the way they built into me, favorite teacher I've ever had, or somebody who said something so painful that you carry it 30 years later. There's one whose words whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. When words are spoken, they cannot be taken back. I enjoy watching legal dramas, and I like it when the prosecuting attorney stands up and he goes after the witness and says, is it not true that you threatened to burn that man's house down five days before his house burnt down? And then the defending attorney will say, come on, objection, he doesn't know that. And then what does the judge always say? the jury will disregard what they just heard. But you can't, right? Those words are out there. Those words have already been said. You can't disregard them. It's impossible. When I was in high school, I had the privilege of going to a tremendous youth group. We had three youth pastors at our church. We were a large church. And they pulled me aside and they said, Dave, we think God is calling you to be a pastor. We think you should go to Bible college. I remember sitting around the cafeteria at high school, hanging out with my buddies, and they were talking about what they were going to do after they graduate, and they would look at each other and go, we don't know what we're going to do, but Dave's going to be a priest. And I said, I'm not going to be a priest. I can be married. I'll be a pastor. Then I go to Bible college, and my freshman year, I go on a mission trip, and the guy who's leading the mission trip pulls me aside, and he says, Dave, I want you to know God's hand is on your life. He's calling you to be a pastor. And I'm like, okay, giddy up, let's go. Then I go on my internship. And at the end of my internship, 
the lead pastor and his wife pull me aside and they destroy me. You will never be a pastor. You have no giftings for ministry. And if we know what church you're applying at, we're going to call them and tell them not to hire you. Now, eventually I go back to Bible college because I'm German and I'm stubborn. And a church does hire me. And the pastor says to me, Dave, you have no gift for preaching or teaching. We are going to remove you from the pulpit. I get my annual review and they annihilate me. I call my district coach and I say, I don't know if I should be at this church anymore. And he goes, well, we don't think you have a gifting for ministry either and you'll never be a lead pastor. I was ready to quit and be the manager at my friend's tire shop. Then I go to my mentor and I say, Bill, this is what's happened to me. And Bill sits me down in his living room and he says, Dave, I was your professor at Bible college. You have a calling for ministry. I was your preaching professor. It's called homiletics. I, was, I taught you how to preach. I know you can do this. And he just spoke truth into my life. But how do you know? People can speak words of encouragement and words of destruction. The power of life and death are in the tongue. One other comment I want to make before we go to the bulk of the sermon. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips. And whoever utters slander is a fool. Think about the verse on the screen behind me. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips. Well, one of our North American proverbs goes like this. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And so what do you do? Here's King Solomon, the wisest man this world has ever seen, and this North American proverb that seems to make a lot of sense. How do these jive together? I know. And what, one, and what Solomon is saying here is, if you have hatred, if you have anger, if you have this thing that you need to vent out and you don't know how to do it, find a friend. Because when we do get angry at work or at home or at play, and we have to vent that anger somewhere, so where are you going to do that well that's positive and has a friend that can listen to you, encourage you, and build you up in the midst of the difficulty? So here's what we're going to do. We just looked at the um, power of our words and to understand this is meaningful. All of us in this room have people spoken life and probably death into our lives. So we're gonna look at the character of our words. I love what Jesus says. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. So I'm gonna bring up five different tensions Five different tensions that we find in the book of Proverbs, and you can write them down. We'll go over them again at the very end, and I want you to focus on the one that is most meaningful to you. What is the one tension where you go, I have to get better at that because it's hurting my relationships and the relationships of those around me? So we start with this. Are your words honest or deceptive? Are your words honest or deceptive? Proverbs 12, 17, whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. This is a courtroom proverb. So the proverbs were written 2,500 years ago. They didn't have scientific forensic evidence. They needed to know that if they brought a witness to the stand, that witness was going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. When you look at your speech, is it always truthful? When you look at your speech, do you acknowledge that when you talk with others, that when you send a text, that when you write an email, that when you interact with friends and family members and coworkers and the rest, that your speech is always full of truth? 
the University of Massachusetts did a study, and they learned that in one 10-minute conversation, the average person lies three times in only 10 minutes. So why do we lie? Why do we lie? Why can we not tell the truth? Is it to make ourselves look better? Is it so we don't hurt somebody's feelings? Is it because we want people to be impressed with us? Is it because we know that we didn't do what we needed to do, but if we just cover it up with this little white lie, everything will get better? One of my friends, him and I were driving together, this is several years ago, and his wife calls, and she comes through the speaker on Bluetooth, and she says, hey, when are you guys gonna get home? And my buddy goes, five minutes, we'll be home in five minutes. She hangs up, and I look at him, and I said, no, we won't. It'll be 20 minutes at least, maybe at best 15. And he goes, ah, she knows what I mean. But here's the problem. That buddy is the life of every party. He is fun. But if you need a ride to the airport, he is not the guy you call. <laughs> An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Some fun Bible trivia for you. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Joel preached on the Song of Solomon, and we talked about marriage and relationships and sex. Um, kissing is mentioned 50 times in Scripture. This is the only place where it's mentioned a kiss on the lips. And it's actually a Hebrew idiom. So basically what you do is you watch how somebody greets one another. And if people greet one another with a kiss on the lips, it means they are equal. If they greet one another with a kiss on the cheek, that means the man who kissed them on the cheek is a little bit lesser. And if they greet one another by kneeling down and saying hi, that means there's a significant um, differential in role. And so what Solomon is saying is, do you love someone enough to treat them as an equal? Do you love somebody enough to speak truth into their lives? Are your words honest or deceptive? Are your words gentle or harsh? This is one of my favorite proverbs. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So it's late September. I've got three kids all in elementary school. Sickness is going around. I wake up. It's like 1.30, 2 a.m. And I'm like, oh, I don't feel very good. So I go into my bathroom. I hold the bucket to puke in. And suddenly my world turns upside down. I kid you not, I am 42 years old. I fell off my toilet, rolled around my bathroom floor, landed in the wall, and puked all over the place. My wife wakes up and she comes in and it's like this biohazard scene and she looks at me and she's like, what did you do? This proverb went through my head. I thought to myself, answer softly. And then I thought to myself, screw that. Do you know what happened to me? I fell off the toilet. I am sick. There's a book called Love and Respect by Emerson Agarix, I think it's called. And he talks about the crazy cycle. And he says that if somebody says something negative and you respond with something negative, you continue to speak negatively to one another until somebody is mature enough to stop and a soft answer will turn away wrath. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. If you missed um, the start of this sermon series, we didn't just jump in by talking about friendship and relationships and the meaning of life. We actually started by looking at the wisdom literature as a whole. And one of the things I did is I wanted to take you on that 20,000 foot view so you can see what's happening. And what Solomon is doing in Song of Songs, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes is fascinating. He's constantly pointing back to the Garden of Eden. 
And you see it in this proverb. A gentle tongue is the tree of life. And he's saying to his listeners, when we speak with somebody with gentleness, we're taking them back to the way God created the world to be. We're taking them back to a place where there is no sin, where there is mutual respect for one another, where the love of God is evident and obvious, and it's fascinating. As people on this side of Jesus, we also recognize that when God comes back and we come with him into the new Jerusalem, into the heaven, the tree of life is there giving life to everybody who eats its fruit. It's beautiful what's taking place. We might win an argument, we might win a debate when we have um, cutting words or witty remarks, but we are not winning people's hearts unless we do so with a gentle tongue. Is your word gentle or harsh? Are your words wise or careless? This is Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lip is prudent. All the verses behind me, I believe, are from the ESV, but I actually memorized this back in the day in the New International Version, and it says, when your words are plenty, sin is abundant. So let's just talk about what's obvious right now. I am standing up, and preaching for about 35 minutes. My average sermon has 5,000 words. And there's this humbling reality that not every one of my words is perfect. You see, the more we talk, that doesn't mean sin goes away. The more we talk, it means we haven't thought through what we're going to say. The more we talk, we recognize we're just starting to spitball a little bit. And yeah, I spend a, a, a few hours studying and an hour or so kind of prepping and shaping the message and then a couple hours writing, but it's not edited by anybody. Pastor Joel doesn't see this. Pastor David doesn't see it. My wife occasionally might look at it, but it's not like this is a book that I'm writing. When words are many, Transgression is not lacking. We need to speak words that are hearable. We need to speak words that bring life and hope and healing and understanding. Proverbs 13.3 says this, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Your words might be true, but if they come at the wrong time or in the wrong way, they will not be listened to. So how do you speak? How do you talk to other people? What is the tone of your voice? What is your inflection? What is your body language? Are you leaning in into conversations? Or are you leaning back, expressing to that other individual, I am not interested in what's taking place here? For those of you who have had really difficult annual reviews or you had a coach in whatever sport you played who was just harping on you, how do you respond when they're just going after you? The best thing is to say nothing at all. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and you as a cool spirit is a man of understanding. This is the classic, the hot head versus the man who can control his temper. James 3 verse 2, we read this, if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Are you curious? When it comes to are you wise or are you careless, are you curious about why people think differently than you? Why they're on the other side of the political spectrum? Why they're a Flames fan? Why they do these weird and bizarre things? Help me understand that. Well, that's a different perspective than I have. Can you help me see what you're thinking and why you think that way? Are your words wise or careless? Are they economic or impulsive? 
I'm gonna show you how powerful the Proverbs are. We're gonna look at the exact same Proverbs we just did for wise and careless, for economic and impulsive. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lip is prudent. I wanted to know how often, uh, how many words does the average person speak in a day? And so I Google it. How many words does the average person speak in a day? First article that comes up, the average man speaks 7,000 words, the average woman speaks 20,000 words. And I was like, this makes sense to me. But then I was like, I need to make sure I'm on the same page, so I keep looking, and they say that stat is not true at all. They said what's a lot more realistic is that the average man and average woman speaks about 8,000 words a day. The problem is the average man spends 7,800 of those words at work and only 200 when they get home. The average mom has 500 words at home and 7,500 she needs to share to her husband. I'm looking for an amen, wife. <laughs> it changes things. Here's what's fascinating. Studies have been done, how long can you talk while, and still engage people in that conversation? Overwhelmingly, the answer is 40 seconds. That if you're somebody who likes to monopolize a conversation, if you're somebody who tells really long stories, people start to tune out. Are your words economic or are they impulsive? Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He opens wide, his lips come to ruin. I'm not using the proverb, but perhaps you're thinking about the proverb. Uh, shoot, it's not coming to mind all of a sudden. Uh, basically, um, whoever keeps his mouth shut is considered wise. When they open their mouth, they're recognized it's a fool. But for some of us, challenges take place. What if you're like me and you're an introvert? And you like to be alone, you like to study alone, you like to watch Netflix alone, that's just how life works. But God is saying, I need you to speak up a little bit. Because something happens at work or something happens when your friend shares a really bad idea and you go, I don't know what to say. But you have to say something. Some of us in this room, we talk too much. And we have to learn to pull back on our words. Final idea, are your words courageous? Or are they full of gossip? Are your words courageous? Or are they full of gossip? Proverbs eleven thirteen: Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Maybe you've heard the line, I don't repeat gossip. So listen closely the first time. There's a dopamine that gets released. I have a pet love for psychology. My sister's a psychologist. And so it's fun for me to learn about these things. And I was reading some psych, uh, psychology articles this past week. And they said, what makes gossip so engaging isn't necessarily that you're hearing something about somebody else, but that you get a closeness that takes place and the dopamine is released within your body. And we start to think like, oh, well, what's the big deal? It's just a little bit of gossip between friends. Here's why it's a big deal. For those of you who are um, leaders in your organizations, look at this. This is what gossip does. Lowers morale, creates a toxic culture, spread of misinformation, there's office politics, it damages reputation, there's a loss of trust, it increases stress, it lowers productivity, it increases depression and anxiety, and lowers retention. That's not the entire list. These were my top 10 out of everything that I read this past week. Gossip destroys organizations. Gossip destroys families. Gossip destroys friendships. So what are we going to do to stop it? I read an interesting article this last week that was incredibly humbling. It says, overwhelmingly, employees don't quit jobs. They quit bosses. 
And so if you're a manager, if you're a leader, if you're a small group leader, some um, role in your organization, and you're not putting an end to the gossip and the destructive words that are taking place, people aren't quitting the job, they're quitting you. And that's humbling stuff. I used to be a part of uh, what was called a rural church pastors network. Before I came to Ellerslie, I was working at a small rural church just west of the city. And we gathered together two, three times a year. I can't recall how often. And one of our conversations was purely about gossip. You're like, really? We're driving a couple hours to talk about gossip? When I was in Alberta Beach, the average attendance was hovering around 50, maybe 60 people. And so if one family gossiped, and you wanted to talk to them and say, hey, we have a real problem here, and if they left, that was 10% of your congregation that walked out the door, 10% of your budget that may have walked out the door. So rural church pastors are going, well, maybe we can put up with it. And then story after story after story, church split, church split, church split, because it's not getting dealt with the way it needs to. One of my previous pastors had a great line. He said, when people come to us with gossip, here's how we respond. You're coming to me for two reasons. One, you don't know what to do in this situation. Or two, you want to approach them, and you, um, but you don't know how, and you want me to go with you. Now, obviously, those aren't the two reasons. The third reason is, well, no, this is a really juicy piece of gossip, and I want to share it with you. But he said, we need to put an end to the gossip. So are we courageous enough to stand up when people are gossiping about others, when people are speaking poorly about others? And even if you think, but Dave, gossip is fun. What are they saying about you when you're not around? Jesus says this, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So whether you take a picture with your phone or maybe you've been writing this down in your notes or in your um, notebook, honest or deceptive, gentle or harsh, wise or careless, economic or impulsive, courageous or gossip, all of us in this room have at least one of these areas we need to work on. All of us can look at that list and go, yeah, that's the one area where I know I'm struggling. That's the one area that it's hurting me it's hurting my family, it's hurting my church, it's hurting my relationships, it's hurting my neighbors, it's doing something. So what's the one area you need to focus on? Don't worry about all of them, focus on one. Third part of the outline. How do we grow in the healing of our words? How do we actually get better at this? I remember being, uh, maybe I was in high school, maybe I was a young adult, and I was driving to church, and I remember exactly where I was. I was driving south on 170th Street, right at 107th Ave. There's a Wendy's there. There used to be a Swiss chalet. It's where the Lazy Boy Furniture Gallery is. I remember exactly where I was. And I thought, God, I'm done sinning. I have decided I'm not going to sin anymore. And then some jerk cut me off, and I honked, and I yelled at him and gave him a piece of my mind. Uh, that was positive. <laughs> Willpower is not enough. It's what in your heart that will determine how you speak. It's exactly what Jesus says in Luke 6:45. Here's a passage in Proverbs. This is uh, eight verses long. If you um, Proverbs 4:20 20 to 27, my son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are the life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Listen to this. 
Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away your crooked speech. Put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Proverbs 4, 23 and 24. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the spring of life. Put away your crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. How do we do that? If you're new to Ellerslie, if you're checking us out, we talk about Jesus every single week. At the beginning of John's gospel, some people say it's the first verse in the whole Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I don't have verse 14 memorized. John 1 verse 14, we read this, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Son from the Father. He is the Alpha and the Omega. One commentator past week said, he is the entire dictionary. If you're on the prayer team, I invite you to come forward. I'm gonna talk about Jesus for a couple minutes, but if you're here and you're thinking, I need my speech to be better, we would love to pray with you and pray for you. If somebody spoke negative words into your life that destroyed your heart and destroyed your soul and you're like me where 30 years, 40 years later, it's still eating at you, we would love to pray with you and pray for you. So the word of God, Jesus Christ, comes to earth and he takes on flesh. And in Matthew chapter three, we have Jesus' baptism. It's the best picture of the Trinity in all of the scripture. Jesus, the son of God, is coming up out of the water and the Holy Spirit comes and descends upon his shoulder in the picture of a dove. And God the Father from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. For the next three years, Jesus is ministering about the kingdom of God. He's telling people about how great God is. He is speaking with such wisdom and authority. The teachers of the law are saying, how did he get this smart? His words are never impulsive. They are always economic. His words are never careless. They are always full of wisdom. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's calming the storm, all with his word. And at the end of his earthly ministry, his hands are spread out on the cross. And he cries out to his heavenly father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God the father in the kingdom of heaven shuts the door. He says, Jesus, not now. Three days later, Jesus rises triumphantly from the grave and the doors of heaven swing wide open. Jesus died so we might have eternal life. Jesus was given the silent treatment so that we might have the wisdom and understanding that God offers all people and whoever believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus continues to come and engage with the disciples over the next 40 days. And they're standing in Jerusalem and he says, I'm going to ascend into heaven. You're not going to see me any longer. But stay in Jerusalem because I have a gift for you. Ten days later, on the day of Pentecost, 120 disciples are gathered together waiting in Jerusalem for this wonderful thing that Jesus promised he's going to give them, but they don't know what to expect. And the Holy Spirit descends upon them. Their hearts are radically transformed. And what's the first thing they do? They speak. 
and their tongues have been opened to proclaim the good news of the gospel to all of the people who are coming out of the Temple Mount in words that they can understand. The curse of Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel has been reversed. Jesus is saying, I have healed your hearts. I have restored your speech. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will offer you rest. This is the power of Jesus and the offering of the healing of our words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Proverbs. And while we might have to jump around to hear about the different Proverbs on speech, wow, is it powerful. And so God, we pray that you would forgive us when our speech has fallen short. And just like you did 2,000 years ago, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would speak with tongues that have been transformed because our hearts have been transformed. We pray this knowing the great and awesome power of your spirit. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Dave, for the word that you've brought to us this morning. What one thing that you may need to work on this coming week. We have Emily and we have Greg down here at front. If you need to come forward to pray with somebody with regards to these things. But let's give God the final word through the Apostle Paul who said, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for ne and necessary for edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. May God bless you as you go this week and guide you in your words and in your thoughts. Amen.